Chapter 6 God's Works Made Manifest Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. John 9, 3 Never attribute any sorrow endured by men to some special sin. There is a tendency to think that those on whom the tower in Siloam fell must have been sinners worse than all men who dwelt in Jerusalem. If any have met with a very sudden death, we tend to suppose that they must have been exceedingly guilty. But it is not so. Very godly men have been burned to death in a train. I remember one who came to that terrible end. Many holy men have been drowned on board ship as they have been going about their master's errands, and some of the most gracious men I have ever met have dropped dead without a moment's warning. You cannot judge a man's state before God by the circumstances which happen to him in this life, and it is very unkind, ungenerous, and almost inhuman to sit down like the friends of Job and suppose that, because Job is greatly afflicted, he must also be greatly sinful. It is not so. All afflictions are not chastisements for sin. There are some afflictions that have quite another end and object. They are sent to refine, sent as a holy discipline, sent as sacred excavators to make more room in the heart for Christ and His love. You know that it is written, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Revelation 3 19. And, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every one whom he receives as a son. Hebrews 12, 6. So it was absurd to suppose that if a man was born blind, it was a punishment for the sin of his parents, or a punishment sent beforehand for some sin which he might commit at some point in the future. Our Saviour asks us to regard infirmities and physical evils as sent to be a space wherein God can display His power and His grace. This was the case in this particular instance, and I am going to push the fact further and say that even sin itself, existing as it does everywhere, provides the opportunity for what we call elbow room for the grace of God. It may even become a platform upon which the wonderful power, patience, and sovereignty of divine grace can be displayed. We are going to look at how God takes opportunities from the sorrows and sins of men to display His own works and glory. This man was born blind in order that through his blindness the power of God might be seen in giving him sight. So I think there are many in whom the power of God can very readily be seen and the works of God be very clearly displayed. What works of God are seen in the salvation of men? We observe a man who is all out of order. There is nothing right about him. He is a man upside down. His heart loves that which will ruin it and does not love that which would bless it. His understanding is darkened. He exchanges bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. His will has become very domineering and has usurped power which it never ought to possess. If you study him well, you won't make much of him. He is all out of gear, like a piece of machinery in which the wheels don't operate correctly. To describe him briefly in one word, I would say that he is in a state of chaos. Everything is in confusion and disorder, tossed up and down. Well, says one, that's my case. I'm like that right now. Creation The first work of God that we read about in the Bible is the work of creation. Scripture, 
In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. When it came time for the event of fitting together the world, which we generally call creation, although it was really the arrangement of that which had been created, the Lord came forth. And the Spirit of God, with outspread wings, brooded over chaos and brought order out of confusion. Oh, if only the Spirit of the Lord would come and brood over that man's confused and confounded mind, where everything is tossed about in wild disorder. He can't even tell why he was born, or for what reason he is living. He seems to have no purpose in life, and is tossed to and fro like a log in the ocean. His passions fly from vanity to vanity, and you cannot put him into order. His mother tried it, but he despised being tied to her apron strings. Many friends have tried it since then, but he has now taken the bit into his mouth, has run away, and refuses to obey the reins. O God, if you will come and make him a new creature in Christ Jesus, your creating work will be made manifest in him. If you will mold, model, form, and fashion him until he becomes a vessel fit for your use, then the work of God will begin to be clearly seen in him. Oh, that it might be so! There are some of us here who can bear witness that God is a great Creator, because He has made all things new within us, and transformed what before was chaos into a world of beauty and delight, where He delights to dwell. Light-making After the world was created, God's next work was that of light-making. The earth was created, but it was swathed in darkness. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Genesis 1, 2. No sun, moon, or stars had yet appeared. No light had yet fallen upon the earth. Perhaps it was because of the dense vapors which shut out the light. God did nothing but say, Let there be light. And there was light. We are discussing one who is not only without form and void, and dreadfully tossed about, but one who is also himself dark, and in the dark. He wants the light, but he has none. He doesn't know the way of life, and he doesn't even see a ray of hope that he ever will find the way. He seems shut up in gloomy, thick, Egyptian night. Perhaps, worst of all, he doesn't even know his true condition. He calls darkness light, and prides himself that he can see, even though he really can't see anything at all. Lord, speak the word, and say, Let there be light, and the man will see the light and see it at once. I am quite sure that, whether I can speak with power or not, God can speak with power. It is sweet comfort to my heart that he can at this moment find the most darkened sinner in the building, wherever he sits or stands, and the light can penetrate into his soul in less time than it takes me to say the words. To this man's own surprise, the darkness will become light around him, and the Egyptian night will be turned into the midday of infinite love and mercy. Pray to God that it may be so, brethren. Lift up a silent prayer to heaven, because this light-giving, this illumination, is a special work of God. There are many who are now in the dark, in whom it is possible for this work of God to be displayed. Resurrection After these two works of God are done, after we have had creation and light-bringing, there is still death, and there is need of the divine work of resurrection. What's the use of a form beautifully fashioned if it's dead? And what's the use of light shining with all its brilliance upon a corpse? 
Yet I speak to some who are dead in trespasses and sins. They do not feel the weight of sin, but to a living man it is an intolerable burden. They are not wounded by the two-edged sword of the Lord, though a living man is soon cut and gashed by it. They don't hear the joyous notes of free grace and dying love. Even though they ring out like a peal of silver bells, these dead sinners do not appreciate their sweet music. It is the work of God to make men live. There will come a day, and perhaps sooner than we think, when all the myriads of bodies that lie in our cemeteries and churchyards will rise up from the grave to live again. That will be a glorious display of divine power, but it won't be a greater manifestation of divine power than when a dead heart, a dead conscience, a dead will is made to live with a divine life. Oh, I pray that God would work that mighty miracle of mercy right now. Pray that it may be so, beloved brethren and sisters in Christ. The dead won't pray for this resurrection, so let us pray for it for them. But if there is a man who does pray for it, one who cries, Lord, make me live, that is a proof that there's already a thrill of life shooting through him, or he would not have that living desire. Cleansing Brethren, I could continue to build upon the line of the story of the creation and the arranging of the world in due order, but I won't. You can do that for yourselves. Next, I want to speak to you about the divine work of cleansing. There is in this place of worship a man who is black with filth. He has done everything he could do in order to rebel against God. Perhaps he is like Mr. John Newton, who describes himself in this way. He says, I was in many respects like the Apostle Paul. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. 1 Timothy 1.13. But there was one point in which I went beyond the Apostle Paul. He did these things ignorantly, but I sinned against light and knowledge. Do I speak to any now who, in sinning, have transgressed very grossly, because they have done what they knew was wrong? and have persevered in doing it against the checks of conscience and against the warnings of a better desire within themselves which they haven't been able to kill? I am amazed sometimes when I have had to talk with those whose lives have certainly gone almost to the very extreme of iniquity, but who still have had a certain inward check that would never let them go just that little piece further which would have put them beyond hope. There was always something that they still valued even when they pretended to disbelieve everything and to blaspheme everything. There was some influence for good operating upon them still, as though God had a line and a hook in the jaws of Leviathan. Even though he ran out so far into the great deep of sin that you could not tell where he had gone, he still had to come back again after all. God still does wonders of mercy and grace. Now, Suppose that that black sinner, with all his years of sin, is forgiven outright. Suppose that the entirety of those fifty or sixty years of sin vanish once and for all. Suppose that God forgives, or better yet, that God forgets. Suppose that, with one tremendous fling of his omnipotent arm, he takes the whole mass of that sinner's sin and casts it into the depths of the sea. What a wonder of grace that would be! That is what God will do for everyone who trusts in Jesus. If you will come, cast yourself at His dear feet, 
and look up to Jesus crucified, bleeding in your place, and believe those words of the prophet Isaiah, The Lord transposed in him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6, or the words of the apostle Peter, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24. If you trust Jesus, the great sin-bearer, then he will make you whiter than snow. And in your case, the works of God will be clearly seen, because none but the Almighty God can make scarlet sinners white, and he can do it in a moment. Lord, do it now. Suppose another thing happens that a man or a woman who is desperately set on mischief is turned in an entirely opposite direction. That would clearly be a divine work of changing the whole current of life. I have never seen Niagara, and I don't suppose I ever will, but there are some here who have seen it. Down comes the mighty flood with a tremendous crash, forever leaping down from on high. Wouldn't you believe him to be God who, in a moment, makes that waterfall leap upward instead of downward, and seek the heights in the same way it now leaps into the depths? Well, the Lord can do that very thing, with some big Niagara fall of a sinner right now. Today, you are determined to go into evil company and commit a filthy sin. Tomorrow, you are determined to grasp the drunkard's cup and not be satisfied until you have turned yourself into something below a beast. You are determined to pursue that evil habit of yours, getting money by gambling or somewhat worse. Yes, but if my Lord comes forth determined to save you, then he will make you sing to another tune. Oh, but I would never be a Methodist, says one. I don't know what you will be yet. Oh, says another, you could never make a convert of me. I didn't say that I could but the Lord can make you what you think you never will be. There are some here who, if they could have seen themselves ten years ago, sitting here and enjoying the word, would have said, No, no, Charlie, that's not you, I'm sure of it. And, No, Mary, that's not you, my girl, you will never be there, there's no chance of that. But you are here, you see, and what free grace has done for some of us, it can do for others. Lord, do it according to that mighty power which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. Work in the same manner in the ungodly today, and turn them from the error of their ways to run with as much effort after you as they now put into running from you. I have only one more matter to mention under this topic. I think God's works are sometimes made evident in men by giving them great joy. For example, Let's say there's a person convinced of sin. Mr. Conscience has come up against him. You know Mr. Conscience. He keeps a cat o' nine tails. When he's allowed to do his work and gets a tight hold on a sinner who has long kept him under hatches, he says, Now it's my turn. And he lets you know it, believe me. Let a man become aware of his conscience with a cat o' nine tails in his possession, and he will never forget it. Every stroke seems to tear off a portion of his quivering flesh. Picture how the nine knotted cords make deep furrows every time they fall. You speak, says one, like a man who knows it. Knows it? I knew it for years, while I was just a child. Neither night nor day could I escape from the sting of those falling cords. Oh, how conscience scourged me! And I could find no rest anywhere until I heard the divine voice that said, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. 
and conscience put away his catanine tales. Isaiah 45, 22. My wounds were bathed in heavenly balm, they ceased to hurt, and I was glad. Oh, how my heart cried, Hallelujah, as I saw Jesus on the cross. Then I understood that God had executed the full vengeance due to my sin upon his well beloved, who had kindly bared his shoulder to the lash and bore the punishment of my sin. Then my heart leapt with joy. You'll notice that I'm always preaching the doctrine of substitution. I can't help it, because it is the only truth that brought me comfort. I would never have gotten out of the dungeon of despair if it had not been for the grand truth of substitution. I hope no young lady asks me for my autograph this week. I don't know how many days in the week that request is made to me, but I always write this verse. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. If even once you know the power of that blessed theme, then you will see that it's a work of God to sweep away our ashes and give us the oil of joy, to take from us our robes of mourning and clothe us with garments of beauty, to put a new song into our mouths and to establish our goings. May you all have this blessed work of God worked in you, to the praise of the glory of His grace. How are these works made manifest in some men? He was totally blind. For illustration purposes, I'll take this blind man and just go over his life. First, he was totally blind. There was no sham about his blindness. He could not see a ray of light. He knew nothing about light. Are any of you totally blind in a spiritual sense? You can't see anything, my poor friend. You don't have a good desire, and you haven't even had a good thought. Ah, you don't know what kind of people we have in this London. We meet with people who, for years, seem never to have had a good thought ever across their minds, and if someone else were to speak to them about anything that is good or even decent, he would be talking a foreign language to them. They don't understand it. We have multitudes of that kind in our slums, and in the West End they are just as bad. When the Lord, in His infinite mercy, comes to these people who are totally blind, and makes them see, there is plenty of room for His mighty power to work there, and everybody says, What a wonderful thing that a person like that should be converted! I know a man with whom I have often prayed in very sweet fellowship. He was an odd character when I first met him, even though he was a very good man afterwards. He was as eccentric a man as I ever met with, and I am sufficiently eccentric myself, but he was a dead worldling. His Sundays were the same as any other day. He didn't know any difference between Sunday and Monday, except that he couldn't be in the pub for quite as long on Sundays. He once said, I had been out one Sunday morning to buy a pair of ducks, and I put one in each pocket of my coat. As I went along and saw the people going into a place of worship, I thought that I'd see what it was like. I had heard that it was a decent-looking place inside. He went. The Lord met with him, and that day those ducks did not get cooked. They had to wait until Monday. But he was caught and captured for Christ that day. A total change took place in him, and he became a fervent Christian at once, whereas before he had been totally without any kind of religious thought, either of fear or of hope. Here was a case in which the works of God were specially made manifest. 
That man has gone to heaven now. I remember him well, and how I praised God for his conversion. But the man mentioned in our text was born blind. There are many like that. Indeed, all people are born blind. It is original sin, and we all suffer from it. Sin is a corruption of the blood. We are born blind. There are some who are bred and born in a family utterly destitute of religion. They are brought up to despise it, or brought up in the midst of superstition and taught to say a useless prayer to a crucifix of wood or stone. Can these people who are brought up in this way find Christ? They do find Christ, or rather, Christ finds them, and they hear the gospel, and it testifies of itself to their minds immediately. I suppose that nobody was ever more superstitious than Martin Luther. I have seen that staircase in Rome, which Martin Luther ascended on his knees. It is said to be the staircase down which our Lord came from the palace of Pilate. I have seen the people go up and down on their knees. Just think of Luther doing it, and there came to him, as he was going up the stairs on his knees, those words, The just shall live by faith. And he rose up at once, and he did not go on his knees any further. Hebrews 10.38 Oh, I pray that God would appear in that way to some of you. Cured by Special Means Next, this blind man was cured by special means. That was another manifestation of God's works. The Saviour spat, stooped down, and with his finger worked that spittle into the dust until he had made clay. Then he took it and began to put it over the man's eyes. I believe that God is greatly glorified by the salvation of people through the simple preaching of the gospel, the very simplest means that can be used. Often men say, when souls are saved in this place, as they are continually, well, I can't see anything remarkable in the preacher. No, and if you were to look a great deal longer, you would see less than you see now, because there's not anything to see in him. But there is a great deal in the gospel. If some preachers would only preach the gospel, they would soon see how very superior it is to all their fine essays. But they prepare their sermons so well. Oh, yes. I know, but did you ever hear of the man who used to prepare the potatoes before he planted them in his garden? He always boiled them, but they never grew, because he had prepared all the life out of them. Many boiled sermons are brought out to the people, but they never grow. They are elaborated and prepared so much that nothing will ever come out of them. The Lord loves to bless living words spoken in simple language out of an earnest heart. The man who speaks in this manner does not get the glory. All the glory goes to God. In this way, there is room for the works of God to be clearly seen. He was known as a public beggar. This blind man was also a specially fit vessel for God to display his works in, because he was known as a public beggar. They used to lead him up in the morning, I suppose, to the gate of the temple, and there he took his place and sat down. He was a man who seemed quick to speak, so I would guess that he often exchanged small talk with those that went by, and they remembered what kind of a man he was. I suspect he was always very sarcastic, and when they spoke to him and gave him nothing, he knew how to give them something. That blind beggar was a well-known character in Jerusalem, as well-known as the blind beggar of Bethnal Green. So the Saviour selected him, because he was so well-known and opened his eyes.
You are in the same situation, aren't you? You are well known, but I won't single you out because I don't like doing that kind of thing. Not long ago, a soldier came in here who had been a professor of religion, but he had turned away from the faith and returned to his former way of life. But he wanted to hear the gospel again. Just over yonder, where there are two pillars, he wisely chose a place where I couldn't see him. But it so happened, on that Sunday night, and he is the witness of this, that I remember saying, Well, Will, you've got to come back, you know. You've got to come back, and the sooner the better. Will did come back, and he sent word to me to say that he had come back with a broken heart to find his Lord. I didn't know that his name was Will, I'm sure, and I didn't know why he had hidden himself behind the pillars there, but God did, and he adapted the word to the person, and so he fetched Will back again. If there is any Will, or Tom, or Jack, or Mary, or if there are any others who have wandered far from God, O sovereign grace, bring them back, whether they are soldiers or civilians, that they may seek and find the Saviour even now. This will was well known, and I trust that his restoration to Christ will clearly display the works of God in him because he was so well known. Oh, what joy that the Lord would hear the prayer of my friend that morning and convert the Prince of Wales! We all said Amen to that petition. We want the Lord to bring into his church some of those who are well known, whether they be princes or beggars, so that the works of God may be gloriously displayed in them. He became a public confessor. When this man was converted, instead of remaining a public beggar, he became a public confessor. I like that answer of his, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. John 9, 25. Many men can say, well, I don't know much about theology, but I know that I was a drunkard, and I know that I'm not a drunkard now. I know that I used to beat my wife, and now, God bless her, she knows how much I love her. Then I spent time with all manner of sinful company, but now, thank God, his saints are my choice companions. Once I could have gloried in my own righteousness, but now I consider it refuse and dung, so that I may win Christ and be found in him. There is a great change in me. Nobody can deny that fact, and I praise God's name for it. I pray that the Lord would send out a great company of men who are not ashamed of Jesus Christ. We want many men and women who will come straight out from the world and say, Christ for me, because he has so touched my heart that I am for him, and if no one else will confess him, I must do so, because he is my best friend, my Lord, my Saviour, my all. In such cases, the works of God are made manifest. How may God's works be manifest in us? Afflictions Some of you are very poor. Others are lame or very sickly. You may suffer from tuberculosis, asthma, aches and pains. Perhaps all this suffering is permitted so that the work of God may be manifest in your afflictions by your holy patience, your submission to the divine will, and your persevering holiness in the midst of all your poverty and trials. All this is sent so that God's grace may be seen in you. Will you look at your afflictions in that light? and believe that they are not sent as a punishment, but as a platform upon which God may stand and display His free grace in you? 
Endure well all the Lord's will, because your trials are sent for this purpose, that God's works may be clearly seen in you. Infirmities The same is true of your infirmities. None of us are perfect, but we may also have physical shortcomings. You must believe, if you are sent to preach the gospel, to teach children, or in any way advance the kingdom of God, that you would not be any better suited for your work if you had all the eloquence of Cicero or all the learning of Newton. You, as you are, can serve the Lord and fill a certain need better with all your drawbacks than you could without those drawbacks. A wise Christian man will make use of his infirmities for God's glory. There's a strange story they tell about St. Bernard, a tradition believed by some people, but which I look at as an allegory rather than as a matter of fact. He was going over the Alps towards Rome on some business. The devil knew that the saint was about to do something that would greatly injure his kingdom, so he came and broke one of the wheels of the saint's carriage. So Bernard called out to him and said, You think to stop me in this way, do you, Satan? Now you shall suffer for it yourself. So he took Satan, twisted him around, made a wheel of him, fastened him to the carriage, and then continued on his way. The meaning of that allegory is that when infirmities threaten to cripple your usefulness, you are to use those infirmities in God's service. Turn the devil himself into a wheel and carry on all the better because of the hindrance he tried to cause. It might even be an advantage to stammer sometimes to emphasize a word, and if I ever felt myself stuck in a hole by that process, I would make sure to be stuck somewhere near the cross. Many men have had the power to attract people by a unique characteristic which looked like it must impair their usefulness. All our infirmities, whatever they are, are just opportunities for God to display His gracious work in us. Oppositions It's the same with all the oppositions that we come in contact with. If we serve the Lord, we are guaranteed to meet with difficulties and oppositions, but they are only more opportunities for the works of God to be seen in us. Death At some point it will come time for us to die, and even in our deaths God's work can be displayed. I wonder about what sort of death we will glorify God with. Wasn't it a beautiful expression of John's when the Saviour spoke of Peter? He told Peter how he would die, but John doesn't put it that way. He says, By what death he should clarify God. John 21, 19. Perhaps it will be by a long, agonizing sickness. Some will be gradually dissolved by tuberculosis. Well, you will glorify God by it. Those pale cheeks and that thin hand, through which the light will shine, will preach many sermons from that sickbed. Or perhaps you'll glorify God in some other way. You may have to die with bitter pangs of pain, but then, if the Lord cheers you and makes you patient, you will glorify God by that kind of death. You will look death calmly in the face, and not fret, and not be afraid. You will have to die somehow, and He will take you home in a way that will somehow or other bring glory to His name, however it may be. So let's begin to rejoice in it, even now. May God bless these words of mine, and may you all be eternal monuments of the boundless sovereign grace of God. Unto Him be glory for ever and ever.
Amen.